Welcome to Archway's Western Civilization History Podcast for Families. In our podcast, we look for the best of the West and discuss the stories, events, themes, and people that made the West different than the rest. Previously, Marie and I have been discussing the history and cultural impacts of the Roman Republic. In my latest episode, I delve deep into the Latin words and expressions we English speakers copied and pasted wholesale into our own language. Continuing in that vein, today I thought it would be fun to explore some more Latin words and names that we use all the time. The names of the stars, constellations, and planets in the sky. Think about it. Andromeda, Jupiter, Venus, Orion, Ursa Major, and many, many more of these names come from Latin references to gods, stories, and heroes from the religion and mythos of the ancient Mediterranean world. Why do we use these names? Where did these names come from? What were they referring to? As I discuss these questions in today's episode, you'll not only understand why these celestial bodies have the names they do, but it will also serve as a fantastic primer to Greek and Roman mythology, something Marie and I have been meaning to cover for a long time. Four thousand five hundred forty-eight stars are visible to the naked eye in each hemisphere. One moon is visible, and five planets are visible to the naked eye throughout the year: Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. If you have a very sharp eye, you might even see a sixth planet, Earth. Since ancient times, civilizations have named and cataloged these different visible stars and planets. And came up with stories to explain how they got there, their color, or their size, or their shape, and they theorized how the planets and stars could impact our lives. By 3000 BC, humans had developed calendars around the movements of celestial objects. By 2500 BC, we see evidence of these objects being named by the Akkadian and Sumerian civilizations in Mesopotamia. Even in those ancient civilizations, these extraterrestrial objects were seen as gods or manifestations of the gods. And so the natural progression came by 1800 BC, when cuneiform tablets and other artifacts revealed that Mesopotamian astrologers were searching the sky for communication from the gods. This is right around the same time period as Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph from the Book of Genesis in the Bible. All of these prophets received messages and dreams from God, with or regarding the stars, moon, and planets. At the end of the fifth century BC, Babylonian astronomers introduced the zodiac or horoscope into the world, and dating has never been the same. This tradition of the celestial objects being seen as gods and messages from the gods was copied. From the Sumerians by the Babylonians, and then from the Babylonians to the Greeks, and then from the Greeks to the Romans. Because of this, many celestial object names are Roman syncretisms, or reconciliations, or adaptations of of Greek adaptations, of Babylonian adaptations, of Sumerian god names. For example. The planet Nergal, named for the Babylonian god of war, became the planet Ares, or for the Greek god of war, which then became Mars, the Roman god of war. The Babylonian god of wisdom and literacy, the divine messenger Nabu, was called Hermes, the messenger god, by the Greeks, and then Mercury by the Romans. As far as constellations go, many of these names come from the Greek astronomer Claudius Ptolemy. From the end of the second century A.D., 
Ptolemy did not name these constellations, but he documented the names in use by the Greeks and from the Babylonians in his Almagest. Because the Almagest is the only surviving, comprehensive ancient treatise on astronomy, and was widely read, copied, and discussed in the Arab world and later the European world throughout late antiquity and the Middle Ages, that's where we get most of our constellation names. With the improvement of lens crafting technology by the Dutch in the 15th century, by the early 1600s, Galileo and other scientists were able to begin studying the cosmos and discovering new objects never before seen. But what to name these objects? At first, these scientists named these objects after what they saw. Galileo named the ribbon of clustered starlight the Galaxius Kuklos, a Greek term for the Milky Band, or the Milky Way. These scientists also named objects after their rulers and patrons. Galileo named the Galilean moons the Medician stars after his friend, student, and lord, Cosimo Medici. The astronomer Herschel wanted to name the seventh planet from the sun that he discovered the Georgium Sidus, King George's planet. But by the 1800s, it was eventually settled that these new objects should have names that reflected the classical Greek and Roman names of the other planets and objects. And thus, George's planet became Uranus. And when Neptune was officially discovered in 1846, instead of being called Le Verrier after its discoverer, it was called Neptune. And the ninth planet from the Sun, discovered in 1930, was called Pluto at the suggestion of an 11-year-old girl, Venetia Burney, who loved the classics. The suggestion was enthusiastically accepted by the discoverer of Pluto, as its initials PL were the same as his grandfather's, Percival Lowell, the man who theorized about Pluto and spent his life and fortune searching for it. Since 1919, the International Astronomical Union has determined the official names of celestial objects. Their role as governing body on this was affirmed by the United Nations in 1982. They have confirmed the classical Greek and Roman names for the objects most important to us in our solar system, and now mostly name things with a serial number for extrasolar objects. This is probably because powerful telescopes on and off planet are discovering new objects at an exponentially fast rate. But it also might be because we have a lot fewer 11-year-olds reading the classics and coming up with great names. Now that you understand who has been naming these things and why are they so often Latin and classical names, let us learn about the myths who share names and places in our solar system. As I tell you these myths, I am drawing from primarily Greek sources, but using the Roman names. This should be fine, since much of Greek mythology was wholeheartedly copied and pasted by the Romans. They were known for yoinking other people's gods that they liked and adding them to their own pantheon with their own names. First up is our home Earth. The name Earth does not come from an ancient deity or myth. It is simply from the Saxon word Eartha, meaning ground or dirt or land. Calling our planet after dirt is a time-honored tradition. The Saxons were just translating the Latin term for the planet, also meaning ground, terra. The ancient Hebrews, Akkadians, and others referred to our planet as ground as well. Interestingly enough, during the Renaissance, the scholars in academia tried to make terra mater a thing. 
This meant Mother Earth, and was a reference to an old Greek myth about the goddess Gaia, who was the mother of all creation. According to the Greeks, Gaia was born ex nihilo, out of nothing, from the void. Below her spawned Tartarus, the world beneath the world, and above her there was still a void, and so she created Uranus to cover her. Uranus is now the name of the seventh planet from the sun, a blue, sideways world in the coldest, darkest reaches of space. In Greek myth, Uranus was the name of the sky, that starry blue expanse over our heads. He was created by Gaia, but he was also her lover. Together they conceived ocean and gave birth to the twelve titans. The titans were the primitive proto-gods, chaotic beings. Two of the titans, Hyperion and Thea, got together. Thea gave birth to Helios, the sun god. Also, they gave birth to his quiet sister, Selene, the moon god, and Eos, the dawn god. Seeing all of the mischief that his children and grandchildren were up to, Uranus grew to hate the Titans, and so, in a rage, he shoved them all back into Gaia's womb. This was remarkably uncomfortable for Gaia, who was now trapped in perpetual labor pains. It was also uncomfortable for her children, who were crammed in there. By the time the youngest son, Cronus, or Saturn, was to be born, the womb was full to bursting. Gaia screamed in pain, asking for help. Someone needed to do something, and fast, and crafty Saturn was just the one to do it. Saturn stole his mother's adamant sickle, and while being born, used it to attack Uranus while Uranus was laying down on top of the earth one night. Through the savage attack, pieces of Uranus fell into the ocean, and in the churning waves and sea foam, the beautiful goddess Venus was born. Saturn then took his father Uranus's place as the de facto patriarch of the family of gods. He released his siblings and enjoyed the wealth and prestige of being ruler of the world. He became known as the god of wealth and agriculture. But his wealth made him lazy, and his agriculture made him fat. He let hybrid monsters born of animals and men and gods breed and run about, attacking the world. And Saturn's power made him very suspicious. He did not want anyone to usurp his power as he had done to his father. Saturn is now the name of the sixth planet from the sun in our solar system. It is the second largest planet, adorned with a beautiful ring, fitting for a powerful god of wealth. Now, as I said, Venus was born when pieces of Uranus fell into the ocean. Venus is now the name of our closest planetary neighbor. It is one of the brightest objects you will see in the sky. It is also the hottest planet, coming in at 900 degrees Fahrenheit or 475 degrees Celsius, hot enough to melt lead. It is therefore appropriate that this hot, unignorable beauty of a planet should be known to us as Venus, the goddess of love and beauty, known to the Greeks as Aphrodite. It was said that among men and gods there is none that can resist even Venus's merest glance. For her, the seas grow calm, the meadows put forth flowers and butterflies, the storms abate. Now, to keep her humble, she was given the homeliest of the gods, the hunchback Vulcan, for her husband. 
Vulcan was the god of fire and an excellent blacksmith. And Vulcan would have been the name of a planet. The 19th century mathematician Leverrier predicted that there would be a planet between Mercury and the Sun, and he called it Vulcan. Alas, he was wrong, but the planet Vulcan got a consolation prize. It is one of the most famous and well-known fictional planets from the Star Trek universe, thanks to Mr. Spock, its most famous inhabitant. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We need to talk about what happened to Saturn, how he was usurped by his son, Jupiter. So, when Saturn, like all tyrants, started to grow suspicious and lazy, he got sloppy. In an ironic twist, he decided to do exactly what Uranus had done to him and his own children. So he ate them after they were born. By keeping them in his stomach, they would not be able to grow. And so when his wife Rhea bore sons Neptune and Pluto and daughter Juno, he scarfed them down. Rhea was so saddened by this that when she got pregnant again, she asked her mother, the Earth, what she should do so that her husband wouldn't eat the child. Gaia comforted her and told her that she would hide the child and raise him herself. This child was Jupiter, and sure enough, before Saturn had the chance to find him and eat him, Rhea had hidden Jupiter deep inside the Earth. Jupiter grew to be a strong and crafty young man. Knowing he couldn't defeat Cronus in battle, Jupiter concocted a strong potion to put into Saturn's drink that would put him to sleep. He then executed his plan, putting the old god down, and then he poured an emetic down his throat to induce vomiting, resulting in Saturn barfing up each of his previous children, including Pluto, Neptune, and Juno. This new generation of gods formed an alliance, and with thunder, earthquakes, and lightning, they rattled Mother, Mother Earth with their wars against Cronus and the Titans for ten years. The younger gods emerged victorious from the conflict, and by the time the war ended, the world had been cleared of most of the potent forces of disorder and chaos. The Titans were thrown into Tartarus, and the Golden Throne was firmly entushed by Jupiter's posterior. He became chief among gods, the Cloud Gatherer, Hurler of Thunderbolts, the Shining Lord of Sky and Weather. Jupiter is now the name given to the fifth planet from the Sun, the most massive and powerful, with 80 moons. Once again, an appropriate name in many respects. Not only is it the grandest and most orbited body in the solar system, its most prominent landmark is a 400 mile per hour storm that has been blowing for over a hundred years that's as large as the Earth. Jupiter is so massive that some scientists theorize it was going to be a second star before it stopped growing. Now, Jupiter's brothers, who played a key role in his victory, were also given positions of power and prestige for their support. Neptune became lord of the sea and earthquakes. And his planet is the deep blue ocean-looking eighth planet from the sun. With 1200 mile per hour winds, it is a fitting planet for the god who loves to drive over the sea in his chariot drawn by horses of brazen hooves and golden manes. Pluto was given dominion over the underworld. No living man has ever seen his face. 
It is said he lives deep in a cavern beyond where the sun sets. The dwarf planet named for him, Pluto, is fitting since it is a tiny ice ball five billion miles away from Earth. It is so far from the sun that its year is, eight, is 248 Earth years. Its tilt is 120 degrees, meaning that its outward-facing pole is in darkness for hundreds of Earth years at a time. This is truly a place only where Pluto, or Hades, could call home. Now, in addition to Jupiter's son, Vulcan, he and Juno had another son, Mars. Mars is a golden-helmeted, bronze-armored, hot-headed warrior god. His domain is not strategy, not distance killing, but the frenzy, the rage, the screaming madness born of the stark immediacy of killing or being killed when you can smell the breath and the hot sweat of your adversary. Mars is the madness, and he is the most feared and hated of the gods. He could only be commanded by Jupiter, and he could only be calmed by the touch of Venus. He was the divine protector of the city of Rome, and he was the secret father of Romulus, the king who founded Rome on its hilltop. Once again, it was fitting to give the blood-red fourth planet from the sun the name Mars. An interesting fact for you, the symbol for Mars is the shield and spear that Mars carried into war. You may recognize it as the alchemical symbol for iron, if you're a nerd, but it's also the symbol of the male sex. The Romans dedicated the third month to Mars by naming it after him, Martius. Now we call it March. Because it is Mars's month, the Romans always like to start their wars in March. So, look out for communication disruptions in March. They can only mean one thing, invasion. Now, Vulcan and Mars had a little half-brother whose name was Mercury. He was the child of Jupiter and Maya. Mercury was a bit famous as a very fast, music-loving troublemaker. On the day he was born, it was said that he sprinted out of his mother, Maya, and he immediately found a tortoise. He scooped the tortoise out of its shell and then strung strings on the shell, making the world's very first lyre. That same night, he stole the magic golden cattle of the archer god, Apollo, and to mislead any who gave chase, he led the cattle backwards and wore oversized sandals on his baby feet for anyone tracking his footprints. But Apollo was a great hunter and soon found the infant. At first, Mercury, or Hermes, made a logical argument, saying, It couldn't have been me who stole your cattle. I'm just a baby. Apollo did not believe the talking baby and threatened to throw him into Tartarus, the pit below Earth where the Titans were now jailed. Panicking, Mercury offered Apollo the lyre that he had made. Apollo took the instrument and grew to love it. And Hermes, or Mercury, developed a reputation as the god of the unexpected and the sudden. A trickster and eternal adolescent, Jupiter found use for him, making him the messenger or herald of the gods. Once again, the name Mercury fits for the little fast-moving first planet from the sun. Mercury moves so quickly around the sun, its year is only 88 Earth days. But its rotation is so slow that its, Earth, that its day is the length of 58 Earth days. 
And because Mercury's orbit has the highest eccentricity of all the solar system planets, it gets to a point in its orbit where the speed of its orbital velocity is the same as its angular rotational velocity, which makes the Sun appear to go backwards for a few hours. At this point, I've covered all the planets of the solar system and many of the key gods and titans who fought for the golden throne on Mount Olympus, or as the Romans called it, Olympus Mons, which also happens to be the name scientists gave to the tallest volcano in the solar system. It is a 88,600 foot tall peak on Mars, so once again, great name. Regrettably, I've reached the end of this episode, so tune into my next episode, part two, where I will discuss the other objects in our solar system and constellations beyond, along with the heroes, gods, and stories who inspired them. Learn about the small worlds of the asteroids Ceres and Eros, the moons Charon, Ganymede, Pan, and the constellations Orion with his belt, Andromeda, and many more. If you'd like to learn more about the Greek gods, I encourage you to read Robin Waterfield's The Greek Myths, Stories of the Greek Gods and Heroes Vividly Retold. If you want to learn more about our solar system and the interesting quirks and sights of each of our planets, you should read The Intergalactic Travel Bureau Vacation Guide to the Solar System by Koski and Grevich. Finally, if you want to learn about the Mesopotamian origins of our solar system naming conventions, read The Moon and Planets in Ancient Mesopotamia by Matthew Ossendriver. Special thanks to the Free Music Archives' Philip Ravenel, D. Yan Key, and Circus Marcus for providing our ambient music today. Thank you for listening, and that's history for you.